Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace Podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about sexual violence and trauma transmission in war and their impact on reconciliation and peace building in conflict-affected societies. Our guest is Dr. Nina Mochnik. She is a lecturer and a researcher at CY Cherget Paris University, France, and her main research areas intersects with questions of long-term war trauma recovery, peace education, and prevention of identity-based violence. Her recent book, titled Sexual Violence and Trauma Transmission, Reconciliation, Peacebuilding, and Post-Conflict Settings, was published this year by Rutledge. She is also the editor of a special journal issue on The Cost of Bearing Witness, Secondary Trauma, and Self-Care in Field-Based Social Research. And she also edited a volume titled Engaging with Historical Traumas, Experiential Learning, and Pedagogies of Resilience. She is the author of several human rights-related forum theater performance and her own monodrama, Can't. She has delivered workshops and trainings in the field of social justice and anti-discrimination, using mostly approaches from community theater and applied drama. She trains field researchers and humanitarian workers in the prevention of vicarious trauma and self-care practices for working in trauma contexts. Welcome, Nina, to the Think Peace podcast. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thank you, Colette, for inviting me. So to get started, could you talk a little bit about what got you interested in doing research around the issue of trauma transmission, the intersection with sexual violence, and then the intersection with reconciliation and peace building? How did you even get interested in this intersection of fields? Well, it's, I would just say, you know, you have plans, life happens, because this research is now going on for me for the last uh, 10 years. I planned to do a little research for 10 days in Bosnia and Herzegovina, because uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I was invited to make a theater piece on uh, the topic of uh, war and gender. Uh, by one NGO association who wanted to address this through their festival. And they proposed me to work on a book of Siba Shakib, who was writing about women, and I would say all topics related to gender and war in generally in Afghanistan and how the war against uh, women is happening for, you know, for decades. Uh, so for me, because at this time I was extremely, extremely young, I would say also super privileged to be able not to learn about this horrific stuff. Uh, so for me, it was the first time when I actually read really into depth about the crimes that were happening to women, especially sexual violence related to conflict and sexual violence used as a weapon of war. And uh, when I started to share this with my friends and people and um, telling them that I'm going to make a performance about this, everyone uh, was a bit hesitant because I've never been in Afghanistan. And at this point, also, I didn't see any chance to go to Afghanistan. So context was completely foreign or foreign to me. But at one point, somebody mentioned, but why would you go to Afghanistan? Because uh, in the former Yugoslavia, so after the, with the dissolution of Yugoslavia, with the war that we had um, in particularly in Bosnia, not so much in Slovenia, where I'm coming from, 
we had a massive scale of sexual violence as well. So there's like thousands and thousands of women who were basically detained in sort of concentration camps for the purpose of rape. Some of, some of people would also call it genocidal rape because there was really intentional policy to uh, detain women of certain ethnic group to impregnate them and in this way to actually work against um, the, the specific ethnic and religious group. So uh, as I said, uh, for this performance, uh, I was extremely shocked, of course, uh, when I learned about Bosnia even more because it was now at this point, this was really, really close to me as opposed to Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, we shared uh, decades of history together. Uh, culturally, we are very connected. There is language connection. So it's really really, really something that I felt is more part of me. And because I had uh, no knowledge, so at this point I wasn't even planning to go this way in my career, uh, I just decided to go to Bosnia for 10 days to basically meet survivors, to speak with them, to educate myself and to see what we can do with the performance. And as I said, I'm still uh, working on this topic 10 years, 11 years after and I believe that one of the reasons is just uh, like with every researcher, deeper you go, uh, more you see more complexity to the problem. And you will also see like that uh, it's like an ongoing issue, you know, even if um, this happened 25 years ago and uh, one might hope that, yeah, things are getting better. I would say that even with the new generation, uh, it's just uh, war continues. Of course, not the, the armed conflict, but uh, discursive and then fighting for the justice that is really not, it's really failing a lot of people. And uh, I believe that now it's a very, very interesting point in Bosnia because a lot of survivors would express that they fear that when they will die, like justice will never be met if they don't do enough work right now because there will just not be any more a person who would testify, you know, what happened. And I think it's a pretty similar also to Holocaust survivors, survivors that they fear that when everyone dies that uh, it would be so much easier to deny what happened. So they really tried to do a lot of work. But the interesting dynamic that's happening right now in Bosnia is that actually the new generation, so I would say not the generation that was born right after the war or even in, like in, uh, during the war, but the generation that is today like 15, 16 years old is really extremely, I would say, critical. Of course, I'm not generalizing now on the entire country and entire society, but I really find there are so many projects going on when young people are trying to address war with the critical perspective, you know, understanding multi-perspectivity, understanding that there is multiple uh, interpretations of what happened. And also, the I would say one of the most positive things that I realized that, that started to happen, like I would say three, four years ago, is that the young generation is really getting engaged how they speak about sexual violence. So to me, this is also actually the change that I could observe when I started to work with survivors and we, with the topic as such. There, there's been still this, this idea of, of silence, you know, this continuous silence of survivors and that there is really a challenge for people to speak up and I would say of course still for a lot of survivors it's still really really yeah challenging to to share the story and to publicly uh, just open up but on another in another way there is a descendants or younger generation that is extremely interested in this topic and I would say also somehow emotionally detached to the level that they can try to understand this more in a cognitive way and also think about what we need to do today to change 
the patterns specifically related to stigma to survivors, and then also how to uh, yeah, listen to survivors and use the stories, of course, not to repeat the history. So uh, it actually came, like I would say, very naturally into, in my process because I started to work uh, with the survivors who are today, most of the women that I worked with is uh, around, let's say, 45 and up. And a lot of them have children. So I didn't work uh, with women who were raped and got pregnant uh, with the rape, but women who gave birth after, let's say, 10 years uh, after the war. And uh, it's, yeah, it's very interesting how actually their kids are now continuing, you know, this fight for justice and really engaging also a lot in, I would say, public projects where the topic is sexual violence uh, use in conflict. So as I said, it came very naturally because I worked with women first and I spent as an ethnographer, I spent a lot of time uh, in their families, uh, you know, sometimes also gardening and uh, cooking and uh, celebrating holidays with them. And in this way, I got to learn uh, their family members. So in some, in some cases, husbands, in many cases, their kids. And of course, because I witnessed the conversations, I was like, wow, I really cannot focus just on survivors as themselves because it's a you know it's a system it's a network so there is a survivor which is my focus but if I really want to understand the problem which is like the trauma transmission so how do we stop it how do we prevent I obviously have to look also at other members of society. Can you talk a little bit about your methodology as coming from the perspective of ethnography. So how, how does your method and how you approach it, you wrote a little bit in your book about that process and your interaction with the survivors. And you talked a little bit just now with the families. How is that different or the same than researchers that kind of fly in, may do interviews and come back? And then the mm -hmm. second part of it is dealing with the trauma and what had happened. And you also wrote in your book about the silence and narrative around silence. Mm -hmm. How did you approach that in a way, knowing that that was, you know, the, the challenges that were going to be facing those that you were interviewing? Well, this is a, this is a really interesting question because uh, this was more, I would say, a topic of my first book because it was uh, a really, really huge problem. I was, uh, as I said, extremely young, quite, I would say, arrogant, but most of all, like poorly educated, poorly informed about the topic as, as such. I literally just, you know, throw myself uh, without really uh, understanding, I would say, and also like knowing what uh, what's going to happen. But I believe this was really, really a huge lesson for me as a researcher and also as a peace educator from from many angles. So first of all, uh, like which relates also to your first part of your question about research methodology. So I encountered huge silence, which I believe a lot of people who work in post-conflict context and trying to understand the process of recovery and justice and so on. I would say the silence is always present. It doesn't matter if we talk about war in general, but I think when we come to sexual violence specifically, in war there is really, really huge, uh, huge challenge. Uh, how do we talk with people? For many reasons, not just, you know, that people would not talk about it, that it would be really hard for people to, yeah, narrate the story because trauma is just so deep, but also because 
it's such stigmatized topic that there is such a huge pressure from the society and so much social repercussions that people actually live through that others who who learn about this experience just don't want to go through the same so they prefer to just uh, keep silent you know and uh, so when I started, I, of course, I came as, a, I would say, a traditional ethnographer. Uh, okay, I'm going to sit down with people, you know, talk with them, put some questions, and they are going to answer. And um, I would say I was quite lucky because I met a lot of women who are, I would say, very, already very experienced in talking about this and who found the fact that they have to talk, that they have to share really important uh, part of the toward justice. But then I think the problem was more on my side because through the first interviews, I realized that even though some of the women shared their story also, you know, hundreds of times, some of them who are really activists and who are appearing on all courts and public events and so on, to me, it was kind of a problematic in a way like, okay, so we have this story and now I'm a new researcher, really engaged, you know, in the topic, very interested. I think it's super important. There are still things that we need to change uh, a society related to this topic. But at the same time, you know, I'm participating kind of in a, like a slowing down the process of healing because this woman is just repeating again and again the story. And some of the women were able to build the protective mechanisms to, you know, just tell a story without any emotional engagement. But for a lot of women, they just believed it's important to tell it no matter what does it mean. So they just got like re-traumatized every single time when they were asked about it. So at one point I was like, well, that, that is really, really highly unethical. You know, and I think it was not just my case. I think it's really, really general that when, especially when we come to the field as unexperienced researchers and we are so passionate about the topic and we believe that there is so many things we need to change and we just don't think really what's happening to people who went through this, you know, and, and I think there is really also lack of research to understand uh, how actually this process of retelling the story actually really, really slows down, as I said, the process of healing. So when I went through this couple of times, I was like, okay, I still think this topic is important. I still think we need to work on this, but definitely the traditional methodology from social and political sciences, so namely interviews or whatever type of qualitative kind of, you know, re research, even ethnography, when you engaged a little bit more, you know, spend more time, try to build a trust with people and so on. But still, you know, at the end, people still have to tell the story. People still have to get back and bring, bring back all these memories. So because I had a background also in theater, I very, I would say, accidentally started to use some methods to relax the women that were participating in interviews because I felt the tension. I felt a lot of like a uh, kind of also uh, destructive emotions. So at one point I just brought in a simple exercise that you use in uh, actor's training and it worked really, really well. You know, with women, they calmed down, they felt super, they, they, I think there was also really this trust that was built between us, like, okay, she's not just collecting, you know, our stories, and then she's gonna leave, and we will never hear about, because I had to spend quite a lot of time with them in this case. So when I saw that this worked, actually, I started to use this drama and theater approaches more and more in the meetings uh, with women. And basically, after half of the year, I saw through my experience that this is really, really valuable way of collecting data because for women, 
like the trauma that they experience is really something that rests in their body. So it's very, very hard to cognitively explain what happened to them. Not just that it's hard to use to, to find words, but it's also because of this cultural stigma. They just feel dirty every time when they talk about it. But if you ask them to use their bodies to express, it's so, so powerful. So everything, what I was collecting, it was amazing what I witnessed in these uh, groups of uh, women that I was working in. But at the same time, I was also struggling because it wasn't really recognized methodology uh, in academic system because I was in a super rigid, I would say, Eastern, Southeastern European, quite traditional academic system. And uh, yeah, I was really struggling, you know, to break through with this idea that not only verbal and cognitive collection of data is something that helps us to understand trauma, trauma related to sexual violence, but that we should really find a way how to understand bodies better. So basically, I was just, uh, I just kept doing this for a couple of years and trying to collect somehow data through these exercises and also one thing that I realized for women, this became really kind of a therapy. Even if I didn't intend to make any therapy and I was super clear that I don't have a therapeutic background and it's not a therapy. We just, you know, I just want to talk, talk about this topic and see how we can do it. But actually I ended up with the whole methodology, how to use bodies and emotions and how to try to understand what people are expressing through their bodies when they try to actually express uh, their trauma. And now I'm actually talking about the first book because then I decided why wow, this could really help a lot of researchers because I think the issue, first of all, of like ethical approach toward this topic when you work with survivors is really, really huge. And everyone, I believe, goes to the face when you ask yourself, you know, is this ethical and how you could be more ethical towards people, how you could engage better to, to, you know, not just collect answers and then go back to your, uh, you know, privileged, say, comfortable life while people are still, you know, suffering under oppressions that are a consequence of this violence or just, uh, yeah, experiencing traumatic symptoms and so on. But uh, yeah, with this method, I also then, because I realized that it's so, so effective. I really then started to organize a lot of trainings and basically just trying to encourage researchers to really try to um, look at the social research also from another perspective. So not to focus so much on verbal expression, but really trying to find other ways. And I think, uh, I mean, my thing was theater and drama just because I was lucky enough to have the tools, you know, to use them and to kind of find the context where it really worked. But I think uh, generally like expressing through art, you know, we also, we wrote a lot of poetry, drawing, writing uh, letters, I don't know, singing uh, and so on. We almost uh, came to the point to make a performance as well with one group. So I think there's so many ways how we can work with survivors to avoid these ethical challenges, but then also related to your second question with the silence, to really, really break the silence. Because I realized that when I you know, spend the hour, it was really, really time consuming. So this is, a, I would say, a, a, like a, a huge negative aspect of this methodology, because in academic life, we usually don't have, you know, half a year to just spend on a field to do 90% of the, you know, activity that's completely useful, so that you are useless, so that you can just get, you know, 10% of your data. But that's the nature of your work. And I think at the end, uh, no matter what, it's really, really satisfying because I think it's also more like a mutual exchange and you feel more, I would say, committed to the community as such. It's not just, you know, grabbing data and then leaving. 
And um, and about silence, what I wanted to say about silence, I believe it works so well. Why it was so effective during these methodologies? Because I spent, uh, as I said, quite a lot of time to work with the bodies of these women. And then in a way, they naturally came to the point when they were able to share whatever they wanted to share. So as opposed to traditional research, I didn't come to the spot with my questions and preconceptions and ideas, what I want to know from them, but literally they shared with me what they wanted to share. And I think it really, really changes like the whole concept of the research as well, because I believe, uh, of course, because we read and we approach to the topic in a very like cognitive, analytical way, but these people also bring, uh, of course, emotional aspect to this. So I believe that I got so many insights, particularly, I would say, in sexuality after rape. So how people is, is, like reestablish their healthy sexual life after such a horrific um, experience which I wouldn't, I believe I would never ask, you know, because I just would assume, okay, these people were so uh, traumatized, you know, I'm not going to ask them about, about their sexuality now, you know, 10, 20, 25 years later. So, uh, but it came up uh, naturally and uh, it made me realize why there is so much more to explore and we just don't ask because we don't know, you know, perhaps also women didn't know about this and they just came to this point because they were able to find a space where they relax where they kind of also reconnect to their bodies I think it was super huge work for them and when I said that it was a therapeutic as well is because a lot of those women that I worked with they attend the therapy sessions for like uh, you know right after the war so some of them 10-15 years already but in these sessions, they really, really focus on cognitive. So trying to understand trauma and trying to work on healing, basically with brain. And when they were able to do something with their bodies, it was a completely new experience. And as I said, I do believe that the trauma is stored in the body. So in this way, the body has to, do, to go through certain work as well in order to heal. So... Uh, Oh, and what's what's so powerful about the way you approached it, and it's reflected in your research, and not just the research itself, but in the stories and the systems that you're integrating. So when you when you read your research, as you said, it's not coming from kind of a narrow lane where a researcher might go in with one question in one lane. You you felt your way through it as what came up and what the survivors or their family members talked about and it was just interesting because you were talking about the silence and then you were talking about the transmission um, through generations when it's not addressed and the fear of addressing it and then how you wove that together as to how the 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 mothers not you know wanting to avoid it and not pass it along in some way through um through their experiences or to talk about it, to be silent. And then the question of then just to be a good mother as to avoid the healing. So there were just so many interlocking pieces, even the three topics that we talked about, trauma can often be just a lane by itself. Um, intergenerational trauma can be a lane. Reconciliation can be a lane. Peace building can be a lane. Sexual violence can be a lane. And what you did is you brought them together as a system because in life, that's where they're interacting. So it's just really interesting. That's not very easy yeah. to do in, in research. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the dynamics that you were um, learning from the survivors 
as to how this played out in their role as mothers in healing and with their children in that day-to-day -day motherhood role. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can just start uh, with uh, when you said bringing things together, you know, I, I really believe that this is maybe also the reason why healing was or is so unsuccessful for so many individuals because we really, really focus on this medical approach to trauma. I, I don't think it's uh, like all around the world. So on a global scale, it's really, really changing now. And there is really, I would say, diversity of approaches to trauma and it's more and more talk about it. But um, yeah, in Southeastern Europe, we still have, I would say, very, very traditional approaches, mostly based in um, psychiatric and psychotherapeutic and medical sciences, which I would say cover really part of it, you know, and are extremely important. But at the same time, the biggest challenge that I think now has to be overcome in order for people really to start, I mean, to, to, to make another step in healing is to start healing society as such. So to bring also other family members and people who were maybe just uh, witnessing, you know, or lucky, lucky enough to escape the entire, the entire war experience. So I really think that like this change, this move from the individual focus healing as a therapy toward more, well, I called it so sociotherapy, but it can, because it's an old term and it's a, it was developed in an old context. I think it needs a, a, a bit of a comment and we can talk about this later if you if you want, but just to, to stay in this, this context of your question. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for mothers as well is that they keep this for themselves. If you think about it, you know, someone is attending a therapy for 20 years to heal from trauma and they were never able to share this in their own family. Of course, there is many reasons and it's completely understandable because there's women who have experience of being abandoned, you know, by their own kids, of women who, who have not been believed that what happened to them was true by their kids and especially by husbands and partners. And I would say this is really, you know, just the continuation of a general perspectives on sexuality as such in a culture, even in a so-called uh, times of peace. Um, that it's just something you don't talk with your partner, you know, let alone talk about abuse of someone else beyond your partnership. It's very interesting because a lot of women would tell me that they really have only one wish before they die because um, many of them are now like over 60 and 70s. And there is this fear that they, because they are, a lot of them are very sick as well. And there is this fear that they are going to die before, you know, the justice will be met, as I said. And many of them told me, like, I would just like to find a way to share this with my kids. You know, I'm tired of sharing this in the, in the, I mean, of going on the court and sharing this to journalists or researchers like yourself. I really, really want to find a way how to tell this to my kids, but knowing that kids will accept it and that kids will, you know, love me as a mother, no matter what. And I think then there is also this other dimension that you, you mentioned, like being a good mother. I think just like as a, a concept of good mother, I would say cultural concept of good mother is, uh, you know, the concept that goes, I would say, in Europe from the Christianity, from Mother Mary, we have this super, super strong image of a, of a virgin, of a, of a mother who is committed, um, of a mother who would always put others you know um before her this is the reason why women deny their own trauma because they feel that kids are 
you know, they, they have the first place in their life and this is what they have to focus on. And then if they will have strength, energy and time, they can, you know, focus on their own trauma healing. But it's very, it's, uh, it's of course very problematic because you cannot just decide, okay, I raise my kids and then, you know, my trauma will stay like in another room and wait for me and for my time so I can heal because you, you carry this trauma. And this is also why I became interested because I started, I noticed in the families that even if women didn't share this verbally, even if women didn't tell this to their kids, you can feel it, you know? And this is one reason is this, of course, you know, if if you see your mother often crying, being scared of night or, or, or a woman who doesn't want to pass the tunnel, you know, because it's just dark and uh, she connects this with all sorts of uh, experiences that she had, of course, you start to think, you know, something horrible happened to this person and more and more these kids are growing because now they are teenagers. Of course, they're explorers of their own sexuality. And I would say in times of internet and social media, it's impossible to keep silent, you know, and silence was such a, I would say, powerful mechanism also for, for the perpetrators before, but now when literally everyone can publish whatsoever on so many different platforms, it's, it's, it's impossible to keep silent. So I would say like very similar that was discussed with a lot of, I would say, scholars from the Holocaust, that there was this kind of a double wall, you know, that um, even if survivors didn't want to share, then the descendants at certain points started to suspect something and just started to build their own story. I would say that in Bosnia today, we can we can uh, really see similar process, you know, with this new generation, because of course they are curious and they want to know about the war in a lot of families, they would avoid talking about war. But uh, as I said, you have internet and, you know, you, 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 you can just type in three keywords and you have everything, whatever you want to know about it. So in a way, I would say social media is really, really helpful because literally today we need only one survivor to speak up to have this one story published in one social media and it can it become viral and it's enough you know so we have the knowledge we have the information and then we can you know start to think about the scale of the crime and so on and i think this is also what really really changed today the situation of survivors and how we speak about sexual violence and also why the young generation is so much more ready to to talk about it because it's just accessible it's there and I mean, in a way, it's filtered, of course, because everyone provides their own interpretation, but it's also not filtered in a way that people would decide if they want to share it or not, because one mother can decide I'm not going to share it, but then another mother would go all public with her story, and, uh, you know, the kids of this one mother would know this other mother because she's a neighbor, and they know that they are really good friends and that they are going to this association with work with, uh, which works with, uh, you know, women issues, and this is how people start to connect. So in a way, I think it's very, very helpful for survivors today because one person can do a work for others, but then there is still really huge problem because women fear, you know, women fear the moment when the kids will come home and will say like, okay, so were you detained in this place, you know, in a place that was notorious for, for sexual crimes? And they fear what they would answer. And a lot of them would say, yes, I would deny, or I would say yes, or I would just crash down so they are not ready. Here, again, talking about methodology with one group, we actually tried, proposed to them, let's try to rehearse, you know, in this safe space where you have only 15 survivors, let's try to rehearse one of a woman of a survivor, a mother will be herself, and then another survivor will help her to play 
kids or a family member, if you want a husband, and try to just say whatever you would like to say to this member and you will see what you feel. And then we will try to come up with different responses and see what kind of conversation this could be. So with this, uh, we did this with one of our mothers. It was uh, obviously very, very emotional and challenging for, for her. And I would say super heavy process. But uh, actually two months later, I learned that she told her kids and her kids were extremely positive about, I mean, the reaction of her, her kids was extremely positive. So I think it's really an example of good practice. And also another, I would say, to me, I think it was also another push when I started to think, okay, mothers really have to be also part of peace education, you know, because they can share this with the next generation, which needs to learn about this in a way that's not going to be deconstructive and full of hate, because there is a fear that mothers would transmit haters consciously or subconsciously because of what they experienced. Yeah, and that's a great um, segue into the next area I wanted to cover. You know, years ago when I worked in Bosnia and in the Balkans, you often would hear the narratives um, that were stoked by political actors who wanted to, you know, get power control, narratives that were passed along inter-ethnic issues of hatred or stories of the past. And that happens in not just in Bosnia, you know, it happens in the United States, it happens in many countries. And so given what you've seen and through your research, where is that intersection with um, peace building and peace education when you have narratives, whether they were silent or now as you're talking about, it's more out in the open and how, how, how that intersection occurs and what, what do we mm-hmm. do moving forward in peace building reconciliation processes? So for me, so I was at the same time, I was also working as a peace educator, I would say this entire because I started to work um, as, a, as an NGO youth worker. Um, and uh, basically, then I just continued formal education, academic career. But I kept delivering workshops and trainings uh, in context of uh, peace education in, in Balkans in general, and then, of course, with the focus of Bosnia. And uh, when I started to research uh, sexual violence, I realized that there is really, really little on the topic of sexual violence. So that uh, peace education in Bosnia, first of all, was, of course, mostly non-formal. So it wasn't in school, even still today, you know, we have this huge question, how do we teach uh, history? Because now it's the time, 25 years now, you know, this is really a history and we have to decide how to, yeah, how to bring all these per- perspectives in. And, uh, and I think uh, sexual violence will not get a spot in formal education for next 25 years, let's say. But also I'm very optimistic because this new generation really, also because there is a need, you know, to change, I would say, generally the idea of sexuality. So there is a need to bring uh, more awareness on LGBTQI community in Bosnia, sexual violence, domestic violence as such. So there is really, really more and more talk and activism on this. Uh, particularly, I would say, in the last five years. So 
in this way, I'm optimistic that in certain peace education programs, sexual violence will also get a spot. But I have to say that, for instance, for the uh, so before the pandemic in um, um, 2018 and 19, I have delivered a couple of workshops where I wanted to specifically focus on uh, legacy of sexual violence or how do we talk about sexual sexual violence in the context of peace education. And I have to say that this was really, really a struggle because it would be easy, I would say, to talk about this in the context of feminist organizations or feminist you know, events, so events that were organized by feminist organizations that are primarily fighting against sexual violence and domestic violence, both in conflict and peace, to have sexual violence as part of peace education, you know, so when you, uh, general peace education, so whenever you talk about this inter-ethnic reconciliation, you know, because of course you talk a lot about um, ethnic and religious group and reconciliation in these terms, I really think Talking about sexual violence is essential to also establish, you know, new relationship between between these young people. And um, so I tried to organize, I would say, two workshops, as I said, with a lot of with a lot of troubles. And um, it was like first why I say troubles. Uh, it was mostly from administrative side because one of the workshop was organized in a, a secondary school, so with teenagers. And uh, before we uh, delivered this workshop, we, there was uh, quite, uh, I would say there was like 20 students or so, teenagers, but there was really, really a lot of preparation. You know, there was a lot of, uh, so administration staff from the school really wanted to make sure that, you know, the kids are mature enough to hear about these topics so to talk generally about sex uh, when they are, you know, 14, 15 years old, and also to, to know to to be sure how it's going to be delivered. So, you know, we will not touch the, 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 the painful points, which I understand. And I also try to assure that, that this will happen. So in this workshop, it was extremely interesting because I managed to bring uh, two of the survivors who agreed on talking in front of kids. And I think it was really, really catharsic for both, for kids and for survivors, because for all of those kids, they have never been in contact with us with someone who survived sexual violence or who was detained you know in a camp uh where the main purpose was was to abuse people sexually so it was really i i would say also for me as a facilitator because i i had like no experience and no knowledge and no idea how kids will react i just had really really huge trust of course there was a per first part of the workshop and we tried to talk about this and to prepare kids in a way but, uh, you know, when people meet survivors, reactions are so much stronger, I believe, because I think it's really a moment of realization. Wow, there is a person who actually really lived this. And I would say for kids, it, it was kind of a combination of shock, but also extreme, extreme interest. You know, how this happened and particularly trying to understand how can anyone do this to someone? Because uh, I would say women were, I wasn't expecting, but women, uh, so survivors were extremely, extremely graphic in explaining what happened to them, which I was a bit hesitant because I would, I didn't necessarily see the need, you know, to be so graphic. But when I asked them actually why they decided to really describe into details, you know, what happened to them, they said, they, they actually shared a really valuable point. Like, okay, we really need to make sure that kids understand that it's like, it has everlasting consequences and it's horrible. And that the imagination that people have how to torture a fellow human being is limitless, you know? And to me, it was very interesting because I was still trying to, 
I mean, to kind of make kids understand that these people who were perpetrators and torturers might be like we are, you know, in the classroom. So they were completely peaceful people before the war, but then trying to understand what the war makes to your mind and to your to, to your context, to the dynamics. So this worked really, really well. And I would say the biggest problem is that when I talk to other peace educators, also in other contexts, as you mentioned, beyond Bosnia, I think the biggest problem is really the fear of sexual violence as such, because I would say that for most of the people, this is really the worst type of violence. And there is really a fear of being able to handle the emotions that come with this. And the biggest problem is also that in a classroom, when you talk about it, there is really, really high percentage that you have a person who has experienced this in their homes or who is going through this. So it's something that it's not over, you know? It's not like, a, you know, as we can say, for instance, for Holocaust, you go to Auschwitz, this is a separated space where violence happens, and then you, you know, move yourself out of it. Sexual violence is really everywhere. So I believe that the biggest fear is really if I bring this into the classroom and even if I talk about history, you know, there is a chance that there is a person who is going through this. So how am I going to handle this? So I believe the question is, are we as peace educators well equipped? And if we would need, if we need particular and different skills to talk about sexual violence in peace education as we have for let's say any other topic in, in, in peace education. Right, and then what type of support structures you might look at when you're doing a program like this, rather than as you're saying, not avoid it, because it, it is difficult and there could be challenges or, or people are affected by it. What supports can be put into place in parallel? Or, Absolutely. or the methodologies you talked about how you did your research, the methodology. So yeah. you're not just going right in it without thinking through how you're going to manage what might come up in the room. Yeah, I think also like when you said like what, what we might need, I believe um, one huge challenge that we have is also that whenever uh, you touch on sexual violence, there is always, you know, there is always a moment that feels kind of like therapeutic for certain people. I mean, I would say also generally in peace education, but especially I experienced this whenever I was talking about uh, trauma transmission and sexual violence that a lot of people felt like, okay, this is the work of therapists, you know, and I'm not a therapist. I'm still primarily educator. So I want to educate people. And here also actually after this experience in Bosnia, I went to do my additional training in, uh, in applied psychology because I realized, okay, perhaps I really need these skills, you know? I mean, I was doing these skills because I, I learned it by doing it, but then I also wanted to make sure that I'm doing it right, you know, by the by the book, because uh, I I realize, okay, I primarily I want to be an educator, and for me this is a goal. I don't want to offer a therapy, but the thing is that so many of us is hurt in terms of sexual violence and this, and also you know when we talk about trauma transmission, I think there's so much trauma in so many families because history is so violent. So also history education as such, I would say, is in a way therapy. You know, even if we are not therapists and we don't want to be therapists, but just for people to be able to talk about it, to think about it, it can be very, very therapeutic. And, uh, and I think this uh, strict distinction between therapy and education is really a huge obstacle for a lot of people who would say like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to touch anything related to trauma because, you know, we can go to the field of 
where I'm not skilled, so where I don't have any competences. And I would say there is really a huge fear, you know, when people open up, how do you react? What do you do? You know, how do you make sure that when people go home, they feel safe and good? And I think this fear, fear is always present. I mean, you try to do whatever, but you cannot control people when they go home, you know, and in their own uh, networks. Great. And what you're talking about is it's going to be in the room, whether it's whether you you hope for it or not, it's going to be in the room. So what are you doing as an individual or an educator to educate yourself and how you will um, navigate that when it comes yeah. up in a way that's helpful and with a do no harm um, approach as much as possible. So Nina, working in Bosnia or other countries where there's been violent conflict and talking about topics like sexual violence and working with survivors of sexual violence can be very difficult on researchers as, as human beings. Can you talk a little bit about how you navigated that for yourself and how you took care of yourself in your research? Uh, yeah, I think, I guess uh, that's a whole other area that I'm super interested in because also my work is always combination of um, activist, community work and, uh, and research. And I believe that, yeah, in all this work, you really get a fit. Um, and to me, I, I don't know if this was luck or, or maybe not really that uh, because I was so unprepared that I can actually get traumatized from this work. I would say I started it with a lot of optimism and with a lot of uh, enthusiasm, but actually uh, after a couple of years, I just burned out, you know, and like super, super seriously. And um, because I didn't have a knowledge again, because my background is not in uh, psychotherapy, psychology or medical sciences, where I think this is pretty much uh, you know, the basis when you start to do this work, you get kind of a knowledge and information that trauma can be transmitted also to you as, a, as an outsider. For me, it was completely uh, like unknown area. Uh, but I remember it was in uh, 2014 that I first time uh, really burned out. And it was a moment when I moved, uh, when I moved to US for, for my Fulbright exchange. And before this, I spent like uh, several months of really, really intense uh, work with survivors. And uh, when I moved to US, I think just this geographical dislocation, you know, when I was just really, really so far from the place and I finally had time to stop down and to really reflect on what, what has happened for the last couple of months. I just, at one moment, literally, I was supposed to start to teach and I just, I just couldn't get out of bed, you know, I just couldn't wake up, I was just extremely, extremely tired physically and then extremely depressed as well. It was hard for me to find motivation. So I would say I had pretty much similar symptoms that, that a lot of survivors that I worked with. But of course, the, the, the hardest thing was that I didn't know what's happening to me because I wasn't, uh, as I said, I wasn't familiar that this can happen. And also, I think I was pretty much like, I would say uh, it's, I can observe this now with a lot of humanitarian workers um, or other young researchers that we really feel that we are, you know, th that we can do the work because we have this idea that it's an objective work, you know, or we are here to help. So we need to provide, there is no space for our pain. And I really, really see this lately because I do a lot of uh, humanitarian work with people when I'm trying to 
warn them, you know, like, hey, you really have to, you know, this saying about the plane when you first have to put mask on yourself, it's really not just, you know, a joke, it's a real thing. It's a real, it's a real practice that you should use. And I see a lot of hesitancy from people, you know, because there is really this idea, no, we are tough, you know, this is why we decide to work on this topic because it's important and we approach it from this very cognitive, rational uh, point of view. And when it comes to humanitarian work, it's like, oh no, you know, we are here to help people in need, to help people who are in a, uh, really bad conditions. And it's not place for us to, you know, uh, complain how bad we feel because we witness all this suffering and so on. And um, I'm just so, I'm just kind of so pushy about this because as I said, I experienced it uh, physically, mentally, but also what was very interesting also in terms of my intimate sexual life, because I think all the stories that I heard, I just kind of internalized them. And I started to really, really struggle to have healthy, I would say, intimate relationship with, with my partner, because I just would feel that these stories that I've heard were kind of also part of me. You know, at one moment, I just became really, really so immersed into, into the into life of these women that I started to basically live as I mean, as them, you know, so being as one of them. And this happened really very unconsciously. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I, I empathize so much. It wasn't even a question of empathy. It was just it got transmitted to me. Yeah, I started to to feel this, uh, like, very similar symptoms, like, like survivors themselves. So um, it took me really, really, really long time to recover. I mean, first of all, I think the longest time was to just, you know, realize what's happening and then also to reach out and to start to think what would be helpful for me. Of course, I tried out uh, long after I tried out uh, a therapy, but it was, uh, it was really, really not functioning for me. And perhaps also because of this idea that I, you know, believe that uh, trauma is, is in our body. So it's not really a mental process as it is like emotional and, and, and more uh, like uh, physical. And actually what really helped me was that I made a performance in 2011. It was a monologue where basically I talked about my experience as a researcher. So it wasn't a performance about uh, testimonies, about women, about women's experiences, but it was really a testimony of a person who went to do this research, very self-confident, you know, that I, I'm trained enough, that I have skills and everything. And actually a person who crashed you know and really talking about this and I think it was if I'm looking now back because this was in 2015 I would say this was really one of the most courageous things that I said because even today when I talk with researchers I think there is kind of a taboo you know to talk about how we get affected because we really have this thing that we are kind of taking a voice away from people that we are supposed to to talk about because they are either oppressed or traumatized or you know stigmatized they're going through this difficult life situations and we are still i mean i do perceive myself as an extremely privileged person in, in a lot of levels you know and, and one of the most important one the access to information and and being highly educated and independent as a woman so i am aware of this privilege but it doesn't mean that because i'm privileged i should be you know tough and resisting uh, all the pain that can come with this because of course i as a human i'm i also empathize with this situation and part of it is you are taking over this pain so for me 
because of my own experience and also because I felt that this is kind of a taboo to talk openly that, yeah, we as researchers, we also need self-care. You know, we are not just providers, but we need to really put the, the focus on this. I, I delivered a lot of trainings in this and, and try to really talk a lot about this. I also edited a special issue when I invited um, people who are working in very trauma, in very different traumatized contexts to share what happened to them and also how they reach out and how they try to help. Because I, I also think that maybe self-help is a little limited concept when we have this stereotype idea of, uh, you know, bath and uh, bubbles and, uh, you know, the uh, Netflix for five hours and uh, junk food and all these things, which is part of it. But I think it's much, much more. And we are still, uh, we still need to develop. And this is also why I tried to give my performance as an example, because, um, it was so crazy that actually after uh, when I finished this performance in 2015, it was already, I think, three years or four years into my research. But basically, when I when I presented it, when I performed it uh, in front of people, I felt I felt clean. You know, I felt, wow, this was a moment for me when I completely closed this chapter and I felt, OK, I can start living my life again, enjoying pleasures of life without a guilt you know because there is a community of people who really suffer and well it was ridiculous because I think audience was a little traumatized you know so I feel guilty that I traumatized the audience and I when I got rid of my trauma but I also think it was very important that I actually found a way how to help myself with this so that it's not just you know this very narrow idea of how what self-help should mean but we should really find it so if the therapist is not the answer then I don't know just try and search for it there's so many ways what is really important is that yeah we take time we take we consciously do something to to uh, recuperate I would say before and also yeah to be fit before we go to the field yeah, and you said something um, that's very important. You were talking about finding what works for you and what may work for one person may be different for another person and to, to find that vehicle. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I really think, I mean, just uh, like same way with the trauma because we have this very narrow concept that it's a medical uh, medical issue first, you know, and then everything else. I think the same thing is also with self-help because of course it comes from this uh, positive psychology or more from a therapeutic point of view. But, um, and I think it's also very, you know, it's really a, a gendered uh, uh, thing because when I was delivering training with the researchers that are, that identified as male, um, and we're working in this context, you know, in context of war and conflict and so on. Um, a lot of men would be like really resistant to this. Like, you know, this, this has nothing to do with us because we are researchers, you know, and we do something that's objective, that's cognitive, that's rational. And it's, it, there is no, it, you know, it, the re, our research, in our research, there is no place for our emotions. And actually, I think with this second book, I was kind of courageous enough to be really honest that, you know, everything what I'm describing is, of course, it's not the voice of the women. It's, of course, my voice. And it's, of course, uh, it's, it's of course, my, my interpretation on the basis of my own background. But at the same time, also, I wanted to say, 
yeah, and I also was involved emotionally, you know, and I also suffered and I also was depressed and I also was hopeless. And I don't think that this is a selfish thing to say as a researcher, because I'm also part of this process, you know, so uh, women are doing their, their, I would say, are doing their work with sharing it, with testifying, being courageous enough to to do this, and I'm doing my work as an educator or someone who is trying to use these stories to kind of, you know, create, uh, I don't know, a, an education mechanism or just a tool to share this with other people to basically prevent this kind of things in the future. And um, and yeah, and I'm I'm I feel really really sorry, and also like in the the current research where I work a lot with history educators and especially university professors, I. I encountered a lot, a lot of resistance from, from men, uh, understanding that even talking about trauma in, in, in context of history education, you know, it's not our task because history education is, you know, facts, interpretations, it's a cognitive understanding, but uh, it has nothing to do our, with our emotions. I mean, you know, if you think about, uh, we talked uh, uh, before before the before the recording about uh, U.S. situation and slavery. If you have people who have family history in this, of course, it's emotional thing. You know, it's not just a fact. It's not just an interpretation. Of course, you have people in front of you who heard these stories in their family. You know, and this story was traveling from from one generation to another. So I do think we have to find this space, and we also have to say, yeah, you know, I am. I am a person here too, and I, I feel what these people are telling. So, uh, yeah, so definitely. And I, I just want to say that I think it's extremely, extremely important. But at the same time, I'm, I, I am quite shocked, actually, how people are, uh, how people resist this, you know, to really get ready to go on the field, both humanitarian workers or, or even peace educators. I think it's the same thing, you know, we, same thing, we are not, aware that uh, it, it can, it, it does impact on, it does impact us a, a lot, I would say, this work. Yeah, no, I very much appreciate you talking about that from your personal experience, how that affected you, but also your, the professional side is what does it mean to be a researcher and how does the experience of the secondary vicarious trauma become a reality and how does one navigate that when one might have been trained to think oh it's all just cognitive logical and that you need to keep keep that separate so you're really calling for researchers to rethink that paradigm yeah absolutely and i also i can say that because uh i when i finished my first research in 2015 i really really needed that break I just couldn't return to Bosnia and do anything related to this because I think I really needed time to process. And because of a lot of mistakes that I've done, one of them, for instance, really not taking any breaks or any vacations, but really just because I think this work consumes you so much, you know. I mean, any any type of work, I think, in, in the context of peace education, peace building, reconciliation, when you also have this, uh, you know, several roles between researcher or engaged researcher and activist or educator, I think it just, you know, a lot of us are so committed to this that everything else, like life outside of this really doesn't exist. And I would say this is also one of the manifestations of vicarious trauma. You know, this is a response when you just start to neglect, you know, your partner, your friends, everything. And I, I can really, really see this, you know, and I, I experienced this myself as well, like going out for a drink 
on Friday night or getting drunk and partying, you know, like what so young people would do to me, it was, it was, you know, stupid and nonsense, you know, so many people in the world suffer and then you are, you know, just drinking on a Friday night. And I was really, really judgmental, you know, towards people like, hey, why you are not engaging? The world is so bad because you are not doing your role, you know, and I'm doing it. And, and I think it's also part of the process of growing up as a, you know, peace educator or someone who is doing it in this context to realize that, that there is just so much as we can do, you know, and that even if we, uh, I, I actually realized then with this second research, because um, obviously I, I experienced this, this trauma and I learned, I would say a uh, hard way, uh, how to, yeah, how to, to, how to train myself better and how to protect myself better. And I can really say that with this second research, I felt so much more comfortable uh, doing it so much, uh, so like more self-confident. And also I, I saw the difference, you know, when I left the families, when I left women, I was able to have my life, you know, I was able to reconnect with my friends. I was able to go out to theater to do, you know, I would say this normal, mm -hmm. like um, everyday life things without the guilt, you know, just thinking like, okay, I'm not dumb. I'm not leaving them. So I don't. And in order to show respect to these people and try to engage, you know, honestly in this situation, I don't need to live this kind of life. If I if I am, you know, uh, lucky enough to, to have other, lucky enough and privileged to, to live, I would say a, a, a healthy, good life. So, and I think it's really, it's really a process that I would say most of us go through and no matter how much we talk about it, I, every time I think, okay, I can just share this with you, but you have to go through your own, process of growing and then uh, I had this experience that sometimes people were uh, like uh, you know I felt uh, resistance but then a few years after I met them and I was we had the conversation and I was like okay so it happened to you as well you just had to leave it and now you know you know you learn so yeah I think this uh, experience is still the most important but yeah just sharing awareness and mostly really emphasizing that nothing is wrong if you live good life outside of this context you know even if you deal with uh, injustice and and trauma and suffering if you have a chance to live good life it's also important for for us yes to be healthy and to be fit to to then engage as possible as much as possible with with people yeah absolutely and with the work that you're doing because it is multifaceted as you mentioned it's research there's activism and education you're you're working in, in three different realms and if you want to do that for the long term then there does need to be that capacity to have the time away and the time to process and the time to enjoy and to not be connected to it in order to like be the marathon and not just sprint and burn out. So Absolutely. yeah. <laughs> and, and now that you mentioned marathon, like uh, running is also very, very good and important. <laughs> I would say for me, like really literally being physically fit, you know, because uh, we, I think we can't imagine. And this is, I think the, the darkest part of trauma that it's so, you know, it's, I, I think it's really everywhere in our society, but it's like you, it's so, you know, you cannot really, define what is it and how it manifests because it has so many different faces and I do think that it, it really helps if you're physically fit as well because it does destroy our bodies so and I could see this because in 2015 I was completely unfit you know even physically and then I started uh, for the first time in my life doing some sport and I felt wow yeah eating uh 
you know, good food and uh, being active and physically fit, I think it's the first step. And then, of course, also whatever helps spiritually and mentally. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think because because I, I realized there is a lot of peace educators who are interested in this topic, but it was also, and I was invited to a couple of trainings to, you know, to, to teach people how to teach about sexual violence. And to me, it's extremely, extremely hard. And I, I could say that, yeah, I, I do believe that I have quite a lot of experiences in also very diverse groups. So I could learn a lot of things, but still every time for me, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, completely new experience because you have different people with different experiences. And I would say the only really, really one thing that I learned and I want to, if you want transmit to other educators, how to deal with this is just, you know, admit that you are wrong, that you don't know, and that you are vulnerable as well. And I think this really works with people to just make sure, okay, trust me, you know, we are here because I also feel this is this is a problem in our society and that we all have to add a little part to, to, to make it better. And I don't know if I'm going to do it right way, you know, most probably I'm going to fail, but I believe this is how history is built. You know, we keep failing and somehow we still keep pushing forward and uh, yeah that's the only skill I think I, I, I try to transmit uh, the rest yeah everyone is equipped with their own uh, very individual skills like emotional intelligence and this and then also professional training and yeah I, I just believe everyone tries to use it then in a in the best way possible yeah no absolutely no it's beautiful how you tied that how you tied that together could you draw the the links for me on the intersection of reconciliation and peace building and sexual violence, as you were talking about as systems, what through your research and experiences with the survivors and their families and the communities writ large, how that plays out its impact. We often talk about, you know, in peace building or reconciliation, you, know, you need a dialogue to get to kind of understand each other or, you know, how the ethnic buttons were pushed in order to create violence or how, as you mentioned, perpetrators, you could be living side by side with a neighbor and have kids that have gone to school or you're going to school. And the next thing you know, you're engaged in a violent crime against that person. So we, we talk oftentimes in peace education around those issues, but sexual violence, even it's interesting when you, you know, you sent your book, I found myself even looking at sexual violence is like, you know, your body kind of gets tight, you know, where, where I realized even my own response was, ooh, it's nicer to talk about these things over here that seem more manageable. <laughs> so how does yeah. sexual violence, um, let's just say, how does that, how does it intersect but also impact reconciliation mm -hmm. and the divisions that we've already talked about that you know ethnic visions what is yeah. that yeah you know it's uh, i think it's a uh, really like it's a crucial question because to me it's shocking how sexual violence is present basically in every conflict a conflict in a really really massive scale basically half of the population and more is getting, you know, abused in, in every, so when I say half and more is like, uh, you know, men and children. And so everyone uh, is really exposed to sexual violence, but we really don't give it, a, give it a space in when it comes to reconciliation and peace building. So in my context, why it's so, so, so important to talk about is because I really, as I said before, I really see a huge problem that we privatize 
the trauma of sexual violence. So, you know, when we talk about peace building and reconciliation between ethnic groups and religious groups, it's kind of a, you know, we work on collective. And then when you have a survivor of sexual violence, okay, we send this person to an individual therapy to heal her or their own, you know, trauma and their own uh, PTSD. To me, this violence was exactly the same type of violence as any other type. So this violence was inflicted to this person from a collective with a, a, like, it's a political, it's social violence. So it's not, you know, person that is experienced somehow of uh, individual, I don't know, strictly mental health issues that came out of nowhere. This person could be very healthy, let's talk theoretically, if this violence would never happen to her. So I really, really believe that there must be a social responsibility to think what do we do with survivors? I mean, not to decide about them, but how do we incorporate what they survived with the reconciliation processes? How, first of all, how do we really talk about it, acknowledge the experiences of these people, and then also to acknowledge that the consequences are long lasting. And when I talk about long lasting consequences, I think the important point is also specifically when we talk about traditional communities. So here, just a little uh, side note, I mostly worked with women who lived uh, outside of the big cities, so outside of the capital, in very rural areas, and also women who before the war were raised in a very, most of them in very traditional families. So, uh, you know, also with the idea of the family, which constitutes from uh, men and women and children and uh, women doing the chores and men as a provider. So re really this traditional um, idea of family, which I think it's also very important to understand how do we talk today 25 years after, because things really, really changed in how we understand generally sexuality, gender, family as a unit and so on. And I think talking about sexual violence in peace building is so important because in a lot of communities that are traditional, like in the case, mother or a woman is still the main breeder. So she is, for instance, it was, I, I met some of the, uh, I, I have been meeting some of the women for, you know, over the six, seven years, and I have never met their husbands. Why? Because the word between men and women is so separated. You know, they might appear, but they would also disappear the same moment. So there was never a family conversation about this issue, you know? And in this way, I also, when I was talking to these women, I also realized that, uh, like, for instance, sometimes as Western researchers with all the ideas about gender and critical understanding of motherhood and, and change of social roles, we, we do forget that a lot of countries, a lot of communities that experience war or are, experienced, are experiencing war and conflict today are still very, very traditional when it comes to, to all these topics, gender, sexuality, and and family as such. So when I was meeting these women, I saw the impact that these women have on their kids because they were basically really, really the main character in, the, in this children's life. So to me, if a woman who survives something like this is living, still lives this trauma because she's denied of any rights or because uh, crimes of sexual violence are still being denied, which is still happening in Bosnia, and there is no justice for, for survivors, then how this woman can actually raise these kids? You know, what is she going to tell them? And the most striking point, I think, for me was uh, like how I started my book as well was a conversation between two of the survivors. One of them has uh, two boys and one of them has two girls. 
And they were, of course, talking about them and bragging a little bit, you know, how good they are in school and uh, how good they behave and how girls are really becoming uh, very well-raised girls because they are doing all these domestic chores and, you know, they are helping her and so on. And the, the, the mother who has to buy uh, said to the other one, like, oh, you know, you're so lucky because, you know, when you get old and sick, you, you can be sure that they will be taking care of you. You know, this really this logic of what is uh, like of gender roles, you know, like so you have daughters, they will take, take care of you, they will cook, they will clean and so on. And then the, the, the response of this of this mother was like, oh, no, no, you know, I, yeah, of course, I'm happy that they have me and everything. But you cannot imagine the fear that I have every day, you know, when they tell me like, hey, mom, I want to come home at nine instead of seven. I'm like, you know, anxious in my bed, waiting to the moment when then I look in my phone and trying, wanting to call them every five minutes and just be on the phone before they come. And at this moment I intervened and I was like, you know, why? I mean, to me, it was really at this moment, as I said, a bit arrogant. I was really like, you know, you have phones and everything. They told you that they're going to be late. And actually, this woman responded, you know how the men in our society are. And to me, it was like, what do you mean with this? And she said, you know, they, they rape, you know, they are rapists. And uh, to me, that's really, really kind of a horrible conclusion, you know, like just really putting the entire population in this one box. And I believe this is because of her experience. So actually, after this, we had a conversation and and there is really, really strong belief, you know, that, that, that um, their daughters will eventually at one point if not be abused be literally you know raped because this is how this society works and there is really like you know giving into this idea like okay there's nothing to do it's how it works it's what happened to us and it's what's happening to you which to me was then very interesting to think about so you know who are the mothers of rapists then because i had this conversation with some of the mothers and uh, it was very very challenging to talk about it because somebody has to raise perpetrators and killers and rapists as well you know if we are raising victims potential victims this was very very uh insightful but also very emotional and challenging situation you know okay i have i have boys how how do i make sure that i don't raise them like some boys were raised to rape me so and going back to your question about uh Peace building and reconciliation, I think there is no, there, I mean, I, I think we all know today that there is no peace without uh, gender equality and without, uh, you know, if we have sexual violence, there's, I mean, because it really affects so many people uh, in the world. So I think it's really, really central. And in this, my context, specifically, when we talk about communities that are trying to go through the peace building and reconciliation after the war, I also think in so many communities, women have really, really powerful role in uh, this uh, bottom-up, uh, like grassroots peace building, uh, whereas men usually have the, you know, the official, like the top-down uh, peace building and reconciliation roles. But when we talk about this bottom-up, I think mothers really have an important role. So I really believe that we need to understand what is happening uh, to them in relation to their own trauma and how are they raising their kids with this trauma? And if they are consciously or unconsciously transmitting patterns that can be very toxic, you know? So we basically are raising next generation, which will just be doing the same things. So in this way, I think uh, this is where I see the connection. Yeah, with the goal of um, ideally breaking that cycle. Um, ideally, yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, no, that is so interesting. And then that gets infused, as you mentioned, through the peace education process, also widening the aperture of what is included in peace education um, by bringing in the aspect of sexual violence. Mm. So is there anything else that really struck you in your research that you want to talk about? And then the second part of that question is, where do you where do you think the future needs to go? You talked about the new generation, and it, it's so interesting because I think about you know when I was in Bosnia in 1998, and then 1999 in the Balkans in the early 2000s, and to think about the generation you're talking about are such a new generation. You know, and you mentioned we're 25 years past. What does that look like? And you mentioned you're optimistic. So you know what. So going back to what is it that you're, you know, you really want to also make sure um, you talk about here, and then what's your kind of vision for the future of, of where this needs to go? <laughs> well, very honestly about uh, Bosnia, but also Balkans in general, I'm very uh, pessimistic. <laughs> uh, like uh, many others, I mean, I'm Slovenian originally, and like many others, uh, I moved out from the region because it's a... Uh, uh, it's, uh, I would say, really, really hard to, you know, when you're young and you want to, to live your, your life and you want to follow your dreams and to create something, it's extremely, extremely hard to do it. And there is really, really a huge exodus of, of people. So it's uh, basically we have, I would say, particularly Bosnia and Herzegovina is really uh, a country that's getting empty you know it basically you have old people who are there because they just couldn't move you know everyone who could move uh already moved or is planning to move and uh, at the moment actually i'm teaching at uh, one summer school which is usually held in a uh, master but because of the pandemic we have it online and when i talk with these 14 15 years old uh children they are extremely extremely engaged politically socially they participate in so in every campaign that you can mention you know for environment for political laws against corruption for uh, like uh, peace education after the war and so on but at the same time they are like you know at the moment when i'm 18 i i will leave I don't want to stay here. So, you know, even people who are so engaged and who want to change the country and who, who see that there needs to, that, that there are things that need to be changed. I think they try and try and try. And before they are 18, they get tired because the system is so rigid. And I, I really think that the biggest problem is really what I said, that the work somehow continues, you know, because this reconciliation process is very slow, is very ineffective. And until survivors are alive, of course, they will fight for justice and until they fight for justice of course this narrative this war discourse is in the air so even young generation uh which you know um as as you said now it's 25 years after and, and people who are now i don't know 10 12 15 years old they have you know completely other problems uh, including pandemic but they at the at the same time they also have this war problem from their parents because it's just impossible to avoid it and for instance one of the things uh, when you ask like uh what is my vision or what what i see right now what is happening is um so there is a couple of things one thing is that i really see huge change in how much how much more uh you can find about sexual violence and the legacy and what is happening to survivors so really i would say one of the most important work is also the work of uh, children that were born of rape uh, 
because now they are uh, around like on average 25 years old. It's just a couple of them, but they're extremely, extremely vocal to, you know, to be born of rape. And I think they really brought this topic to the, to the social and political are, um, arena. Um, so this is definitely something that I would say changed a lot the way how we look uh, on sexual violence and uh, the legacy of sexual violence in Bosnia. But then the biggest question for me, actually, in peace education is, do kids, they even want to talk about it? Because with a lot of young people, you know, we had this issue, okay, so how do we talk with 11, 12, 13 years old children, basically teenagers about war, not to traumatize them and to basically teach them in a way so they can, you know, be optimistic about peace and optimistic about reconciliation and a lot of kids would tell me like I don't want to talk about war you know it was not my war I didn't suffer it I was born 15 years after for me it's history you know and I I don't want to be part of it and to me if I look back because I'm generation that was born after very I mean decades after the second world war but it was still in family you know it was still something that I could see that my father is traumatized from, who was also born after the war. So to me, kind of, you know, the idea why political division in Slovenia is still so strong today after the World War, I only started to reflect on it like it's nonsense. You know, we are like 17 years after and we still are divided because of the war. So if you think 25 years is basically nothing, you know, so I believe that unfortunately there will still be a few generations, but I really started to think like, okay, do we actually... You know, maybe this is the idea of my generation. So people who were born still in Yugoslavia and were actually aware of what was happening. We were were kids, but still we knew, you know, that uh, the war was going on. And then in Slovenia, particularly with all the refugees that that were coming first from Bosnia and then from Kosovo. So we knew that war was there and we, we, we kind of experienced it from this side. So for us, maybe it's important to work on peace and like sustainable peace and reconciliation and all these things. And also if you uh, ask survivors, it's extremely, extremely important to work on this. On the other hand, I'm really, really questioning, you know, if for this generation that is like second or third generation now after the war, if this is really something that they want to work on it because they have so many other problems. One of the biggest one is unemployment. Um, how they are getting employment and how they are, you know, how they're going to fight against the corrupted government. And of course, war is there. And of course, they feel it because country is divided. They they are very totally about their ethnic identity. Of course, they know about it. But really, so many times they told me like, okay, I don't want to talk about it. You know, if you give them the, the topics, what they want to talk about it, it, war is definitely an or, or peace or peace building after the war, it's definitely something that a lot of them would say, it's not my work. You know, I'm not the one to do it because I was born 15 years after, so I'm not the one to do it. So this question about moving on, and at one point, there is too much talk maybe about war and about peace. And I'm really wondering, okay, so what what if, you know, theoretically we wouldn't offer any peace education? If we would just let people live as they do, you know, it it might maybe be better, you know, because they just wouldn't have this baggage and they wouldn't be aware, oh, there is something to build, you know, so they have to realize, okay, so there's been something broken. And of course, in a way, they, I'm, I'm just, you know, exaggerating now, but uh, I'm really yeah, questioning if uh, 
if the way how we are doing it is not a bit too much our own emotional connection and maybe also need how we want to build peace in the region after the war. Um, and just the last thing, maybe with the survivors as, as such, I was also really uh, thinking about this idea of forgiving and forgetting, you know, the relationship between forgiving and forgetting, because there is, when we talk about peace and reconciliation, there is a lot of talk about forgiveness, you know, that forgiveness is necessary if you want to move on. And at one point you just have to let it go and start living your life. But to me, this, and I was so much for this, you know, I was so much into, yeah, of course, forgiveness has to happen if we want, you know, to build something new and if we want to build society after the war. But at the same time, when I realized how justice is failing women, you know, I also realized forgiveness is extremely, extremely dangerous because it really gives the perpetrators, which unfortunately in a lot of cases in Bosnia are free, and not just free, but also in very, very powerful political positions. So it just gives them the additional power, you know. So I really believe that asking survivors to forgive before justice happens, it's uh, is really unjust, you know. It's really something that we, and there is so much push, I would say, from society, you know, to survivors. You have to forgive, you have to forgive if you want to move on. But I don't believe it's, uh, I, I really I really believe it's dangerous in terms of like long, uh, you know, if you look in, in the history, like what happens, because if, you know, if people forgive, then okay, you know, the, my crime is gone, no one's gonna think about it. So I'm just gonna live with this without any per persecution, without any charges. So for the future, it means that everyone can do it, you know, because if you're lucky enough, you know, people will forgive you. So I really think this, that we also have to think when we talk about peace building and reconciliation, the question of forgiveness, you know, one, at one point it's, it's it should happen, you know? So I believe if it happens too early, uh, it, can be, it can be quite uh, dangerous. And that's, I, I, I think I would wrap it up here with this. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Nina for um, joining me on the Think Peace podcast and sharing your research around the very critical, as you've described, intersection and understanding sexual violence and its link um, with trauma and also its link with peace building reconciliation. So thanks so much. Thank you very much, Colette, once again for having me. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.